0: Do you know the most common legal mistakes most entrepreneurs make when starting their first business? Well, I didn't either. And full disclosure, I've needed to reverse engineer some of those early legal oversights, and thank goodness they didn't lead to an unfortunate and avoidable situation in my business. I mean, sometimes when we're so busy making money and taking names as entrepreneurs, we forget about minding the fine print, literally. Today, I'm chatting with my friend, entrepreneur, podcaster, and razor-sharp lawyer, Mel Norton, about the things that you should be aware of in your business from a legal point of view. I am so lucky to have Mel to help me foresee weak spots and potential liabilities in my business. I mean, I truly don't know where I would be without him. And today, Mel is sharing the things that you need to be doing in your business starting today, even if you can't afford to hire a lawyer to make sure that you are protected. Mel is a wealth of knowledge he has so many valuable and tactile tips that you can be implementing in your business so if you haven't thought about the legal implications in your business or if you think your business could be legally vulnerable in some way or you just plain aren't sure well settle in my friend this workshop weekly episode is especially for you you're listening to the workshop weekly podcast The show where no dream is too big and no topic is too small. Around here, we believe that taking imperfect action rules. So we're creating space for you to dive in and fast track your success one workshop at a time. Now, refill your coffee cup, grab your notebook, and get ready to join in on your weekly training, listen to meaningful conversation, and learn from industry experts. Here's your host, Kelly Lawson. Hello, Mel Norton. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much for the invite.
0: I'm so excited to have you here. So full disclosure, Mel is a friend, a friend first, a lawyer second. But I'm really excited today to get into talking a little bit about legal issues as an entrepreneur. And I know we all like to pretend we're lawyers, but it's always good to talk to a real one and get some real quality, good advice. So Mel, I've known you for a long time, and I know so many of us know you as a super successful politician and a mayor extraordinaire. But why don't you tell us in your own words who is Mel Norton and what brought you to become the razor sharp lawyer that you are today?
1: Well, thank you, Kelly, for all those very kind words. My personal background really probably began, like many people, when you're in high school, you start thinking about what you want to do when you grow up. And I'm probably still in the process of growing up, but I remember an experience at that time as a teenager, another lawyer helped me out. And I thought, you know what? That's the kind of thing that I want to do when I grow up. And I was over at my friend's house, Justin, and he lived on the west side of St. John and late one, I'm going to say it was a Saturday or a Sunday night. We had probably been playing video games the whole night and we weren't drinking or anything like that. We were being very responsible, but I sped back in my father's Buick Century back home
0: (laughs) It's such a smooth ride. It was probably hard to resist.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a beige Buick Century. It was quite the car. And as I was cruising through the city, St. John's Finest pulled me over and issued me the most extreme speeding ticket they could, probably rightly deserved at the time. But a friend of mine who was a lawyer, well, it was really my friend's dad, helped me out, significantly reduced the ticket. I thought, wow, that was like magic. I want to help people out like that. And so the kind of the rest is history, as they say, that kind of set me on the path of wanting to be a lawyer and help people.
0: So a couple of things. One, I didn't know that there was any action that you could take to negate a speeding ticket. So that's news to me. Good to know. Secondly, can I just say that the visual image of you cruising across St. John Harbor in a beige Buick Century is the best mental picture I've had in a long time. (laughs) So (laughs) badass. Mel, I wanted to ask you a few things. So many of our listeners are either new entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs or seasoned entrepreneurs. But for the most part, they haven't had that luxury of formal training as such. So they typically have an offering that people want and now they're taking money and names and suddenly they find themselves trying to catch up with all these things like legal obligations as an entrepreneur and decisions related to legalities. And so my goal here is to help entrepreneurs understand where there may be some weak spots that maybe they missed if they got started with making money and didn't cover all these bases. So I'm wondering what preventative steps potential entrepreneurs could take to protect themselves legally.
1: Sure. And I mean, Kelly, you've hit on this in your comments, but for those who are entrepreneurs, they know firsthand really how overwhelming starting a business and maintaining a business can be. At the very core of it is getting a product out, getting it sold, or getting a service out and getting it sold, making sure your customers are happy or your clients are happy. And so much of that day-to-day pressure of just maintaining a business means that sometimes the more mundane or what can appear to be mundane and less important things like the legal issues can get put off to the back burner. And that's understandable, especially when you're getting going, but it means that it's important to have some system or structure in place to help recognize those issues and get good advice around those issues and get it in a timely way. And so there are, in my mind, two or three very key things for entrepreneurs generally. And the very first one is to make sure that you consider incorporating your business. And that doesn't work for everybody, but for the majority of entrepreneurs, for the majority of businesses, incorporating Is a very good idea. There are certain tax advantages to incorporation, and your accountant can provide advice around the tax advantages, the tax benefits of incorporation. In addition, and from a legal perspective, there is the personal protection from liability. Just last spring, we were hired by a very successful client in New Brunswick, and he was in the business of project managing construction projects construction projects like apartment buildings and homes and he was very successful and had done it for many years and one particular project that he was associated with work had been completed the building was built and there was a fire at this building and it was a large multi-unit building the fire destroyed the building and as a result of the fire there were a number of lawsuits started and he ended up being sued personally in connection with the work that he had allegedly not done well on this building. And that was the most recent, very teachable moment in my mind around an entrepreneur who's very successful, done business very well for a number of years, does great work, and gets caught up in something that ends up targeting him personally and threatens his personal home, threatens his personal savings, threatens his spouse's, her home, because they own the home jointly targets their future retirement plans, all because he did not incorporate that business. So really having a hard look at incorporation so you can take advantage of any tax benefits, but more importantly, so you can avoid personal liability. You don't want to end up paying the consequences for something that is unintentional and paying it on a personal basis after you've worked maybe many, many years to get ahead in life. I think secondly, Kelly, is, And this is simple, and it's especially in the Maritimes. Maybe that's been questioned more so lately than ever, but generally speaking, we're very trusting people. We do business on a handshake or feel like we can do business on a handshake. But taking the time to put things in writing, that doesn't have to involve a lawyer. It can just be a simple email to confirm the conversation that you've had with somebody, to confirm the agreement. You don't need a fancy contract necessarily for everything that you do, If you've got the agreement in writing, as it were, if you've got email exchanges confirming the details of the agreement, that may be all you need, but taking the time to put what you do with others and the agreements you have with others in writing will save your lawyer down the road a whole lot of anxiety and probably make things much easier for you. And then last but certainly not least, and this really is for those entrepreneurs who are growing their businesses, and even in the early days, And I remember a media company, a local media company, came to me in the very earliest days of their organization and had us put together employment contracts for all of their employees. And we put them in place retroactively for some of the longer-term employees. But the benefits of a good employment contract include things like having a non-disclosure agreement in that employment agreement, having a confidentiality clause, having clauses in there that Prevent and protect the business from having its secrets and trade secrets being taken advantage of or used or disclosed, and also set out things that can lead to significant liability for a business in the event that they have to lay off or terminate somebody. And that's around the severance that somebody's going to be entitled to in the event that the business has to, at some point, lay that person off on a permanent basis. And we've seen that obviously very recently with COVID-19, many employers going through their ranks of employees looking at the kind of liability exposure they have for those employees who do not have contracts and that are not limited by contract as to how much they can claim for severance. And that makes things very complicated in terms of budgeting for long-term employees who can be entitled to significant severance amounts. Those three things, the incorporation, putting things in writing, and employment contracts, even in the early days, in my mind, are three of the most important things any entrepreneur can look at doing.
0: Really good, solid advice. And if I know my listeners, I think that they're probably feeling a little tiny bit overwhelmed by, holy smokes, that's a lot of things to consider. So I'd like to ask a few follow-on questions to maybe break these down just a little tiny bit. The first thing I was wondering about is business structure. So you recommend considering incorporating your business to free yourself from personal liability, which sounds like something really obvious that every entrepreneur should be doing. We don't want to lose the shirts off our backs and the houses that we live in over potential business failure. So how does a person go about deciding sort of what business structure they fit in? Because there's still many sole proprietors out there. There's people who are entering partnerships. There's nonprofit. What's your advice for deciding on what route you should go as an entrepreneur?
1: Certainly the options are many, Kelly, and you've mentioned them all. The thread that they all have in common or that most of them have in common, when you're talking about either an incorporation or a partnership with somebody else, whenever you have more than one person involved, so whether it's more than one person as a shareholder, so multiple shareholders, or if you have multiple partners, one or more partners in a business, one solid strategy is to have an agreement around what happens if you have to break up. Everybody's very happy to get into business together and to incorporate a company together and to have shares issued to each other and set up a partnership and start that new restaurant and begin business. But what happens when things go sour? Unfortunately, that's where lawyers live. We live in the world of the pessimistic and we only really see The bad side of it. But what I can suggest is that having an eye to not the rosy beginning, but what could be a rocky end to the relationship. And so, if it's just you, if it's just yourself and you're the only other person involved in that business, it's a simpler consideration. Then you're really just focused on how much is this business earning? What is my accountant's advice around trying to minimize? Taxes and minimize and and make sure that it's structured in the most tax efficient way and also around liability. And so, are you concerned about personal liability? If you have more than one person involved, which is probably the majority of businesses, and a healthy number of those businesses are what we call closely held businesses, it might be your partner. You and your partner have a business together. And so, you can have that conversation who's going to be the majority shareholder of this business? who's going to be the president, who's going to be the secretary treasurer. Anything that gets especially beyond that, beyond your own self or maybe you and your partner, having a mind to how that breakup will go is important. And that can be documented very easily with shareholder agreements and partnership agreements. As the kind of business gets more complicated, and this is more so perhaps for entrepreneurs who are obtaining or seeking investment from outside investors, is to critically think about who is looking after your interests. And on more than one occasion, we've seen entrepreneurs who have gone out, sought investment, and you can be sure that the investors are looking after their interests. Mm -hmm. And they may even offer to do the legal work for you to look after supposedly your interests as the entrepreneur. But you can be guaranteed that your interests will be secondary to those investors' interests if they're the ones doing the work. So um, always, and it may sound a bit self-interested, but you do have to be cautious in business to focus on yourself and the protection of that budding enterprise, or even if it's an established enterprise, what is in the best interest of your business thriving and surviving and growing. It may not always. Be the same as your partners. It may not always be the same as an investor. And so it means, you know, from time to time, each party to that relationship may need different advice from different counsel.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think the point there is that all parties signing need to fully understand what it is that they're signing. So if somebody else's legal counsel is preparing the documents, you're going to want to make sure that you've read them thoroughly and you understand what it is that you're agreeing to.
1: And unfortunately, and I think it is unfortunate. Lawyers and the legal system, it's a bit archaic. It works in a language that is not user friendly. Mm -hmm. It uses its own unique lexicon of words and it has a very sort of niche language and a style. It would be like me trying to pick up a repair manual on my car. I would have no idea or how to assemble the IKEA bookshelf. When I'm reading it, I have no idea what it's saying. It's not that much different with legal documents. When you're reading it, what you read may not be at all what it means. I had a conversation with a client the other day and she got a letter from a lawyer. And my whole conversation with her was explaining what the other lawyer was saying in the letter because the other lawyer had written it in such a legalese type of way that it was, to a layperson, it was nearly impenetrable to read this thing and get any information out of it. To a lawyer, oh, yes. We know what that says because we're just used to working with that kind of language. So you're right, Kelly. Like, it's not really enough for you to read it. Yes, that's a good idea. But having a lawyer explain the key parts of it to you so that you're, oh, okay, that's what that means. Not that they have to explain everything in the document, but there will be critical key things that any lawyer worth her or his salt will be able to quickly explain are the key points.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really solid advice. I mean, I can relate to that. When I saw my first formal legal agreement, there was all kinds of shalls and chants. And you're right, it was almost kind of a prehistoric document or it felt like it. And I wasn't 100% sure what all of those terms really meant because we don't use them in day-to-day language. It's a good point. So I think too, for listeners, like if you're reading legal documents and you feel like they're flying way over your head, you're not alone and it's not something that you're lacking. It's just the industry's language. And my understanding is that this language is used to help to eliminate some of the subjectivity that can sneak its way into documents. Is that true?
1: Keep in mind that, as we all know, the courts and the judges who preside over those courts are former lawyers. And the legal system has evolved so that everybody within the system understands what the other person is saying. But it's almost kind of like it excludes people on the outside of that system who aren't used to that kind of language because the language is unique to the profession. And so the judges will understand what it means and that same language is repeated in cases so they have precedent for how that's to be interpreted. And then that has obviously an impact on how the document in front of them is read and understood. But unless you're part of that profession, then it can kind of be like, looking at a mud puddle and trying to sort out the particles at the bottom. It's just (laughs) very, very challenging to figure out.
0: Absolutely. And I think as a result of that, a lot of us find ourselves back to your other point, doing these handshake agreements because between two parties, well, we understand each other, at least we think we do. And you caution entrepreneurs away from these handshake agreements, even on the East Coast of Canada, where we're relatively trusting and friendly. And, you know, we all believe that we want each other's best interest or we're looking after each other's best interest. But you say that it's important to have this in writing. So I'm just wondering what are the parameters around how this can be put into writing? Can Hmm. two parties exchange emails and that becomes an agreement? Or can it be a text message? Or how do you recommend entrepreneurs go about formulating these written agreements?
1: So there's all kinds of levels of formality. And certainly if you're going to invest in a significant, let's say you're going to buy a new shipment of product, you're probably going to have a formal written contract, a formal written document. But you don't need that level of formality for everything. You may have agreed to a certain price for something and a quick email exchange will do that. Text messages can do the same thing, but what I've noticed with text messages, and I see this, More and more with client cases, I'll get from a client an email attaching a bunch of screenshots from text messages. And the way text messages generally work is they work in kind of reverse order. They're very unwieldy to use in terms of printing them off and trying to reassemble the chain of conversation. And so I would steer away from text messages as the basis for agreements. I think email is pretty informal, but yet still easily recoverable and easily read and digested way to confirm agreements for different things. In the practice of law, we'll confirm agreements with other lawyers on large settlements just by email. Here's our offer, do you accept? You know, let me know. <laughs> a little more formal sometimes than that and then you have that record as well. One thing that can be tempting and and everybody has a different practice around this is to delete your emails. Well, Create a practice of saving your emails and in a way that you know, you can access them. We've been working with a client lately who is in a legal fight with his former employer, and he's got emails saved for the last 10 years that he just stored on his computer and backed them up from time to time. And so I've got emails that must be about six feet thick at this point. Wow. Because he's been so good about it. That makes for a very happy lawyer, to have all that
0: paperwork. Okay, listen, I get it. Deep down, you know you deserve more, but you don't quite know how to get there. You see a lot of programs and e-courses that could be of benefit to you, but you don't know which one will take you to where you want to be. It might be a mix of a few of them, you think, but we both know that can cost a pretty penny. Well, Workshop Warrior, all of this ends now. My friends at The Bundle Co. have put together a magical bundle of business-related e-courses and membership programs covering every business-related topic you can imagine at an unbelievable price so that you can improve your business, life, and finances in every way without having to remortgage your house. Inside the bundle, you'll find over 70 courses and programs from amazing instructors from all over the world who will be teaching you everything you need to skyrocket your success. Course topics range from business financing to marketing, social media, photography, copywriting, scaling, mindset, content creation, productivity hacks, and so much more. Oh, and by the way, my signature beginner photography course, it's in there too. And here's the best part. For a limited time, you can get all of this for just $100. That's right, just $100. That's a 99% savings. Insane, right? But you've got to act fast. The bundle is only available starting June 1st for just 10 days. To get your business bundle for just $100, head to kellylawson.ca slash that. That's kellylawson.ca slash business bundle, and I'll see you on the inside. I need to ask you this question because as a person in kind of the online space and as an entrepreneur, something that I've been seeing more and more of, I think maybe somewhat of an emerging industry, are these boilerplate contracts. So these are contracts that, you know, you fill out somewhat of a questionnaire and it spits out a contract that covers some of these bases that you talked about earlier, like an employment contract, for an example, or in my case, as a wedding photographer, there's plenty of wedding photography agreements that you can take and copy and paste off the internet. And of course, they're at a significantly reduced rate from having a lawyer custom craft an agreement for you, as you have for me. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are around these boilerplate services that we're seeing emerging.
1: Kelly, if there's, if there's one general thought about it, They're typically worth what you pay for them.
0: (laughs) So not a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. To be a bit more serious for a moment, you have to first recognize that, especially in North America, we're privileged to have a great legal system, but that legal system is unique from province to province and from state to state. And it's very easy on both sides of the U.S.-Canada border. It's closed right now, but the internet traffic is still flowing freely. Mm -hmm for agreements that may have been drafted for some Canadian province to be picked up in the US and vice versa. And if you pick up a contract that was drafted for a particular, or drafted in a particular US state for a particular audience there, and try to apply it in a Canadian province, the chances of it working well, if it's ever put to the test, are probably quite low. And I mean, and that's really the risk you're taking. Is it ever going to be put to the test? And lawyers, kind of in the vein of the worst case scenario, always think, okay, if it's ever put to the test, we want this thing to survive. And so if you pick something up off the internet that is not specific to your jurisdiction, one provision in it that is not applicable to your particular province or state could have the effect of invalidating the entire agreement. I've seen that on more than one occasion with contracts coming from the United States and getting applied in New Brunswick and finding clauses in it that are completely invalidate the contract. And so back to the general theme, they're worth what you pay for them. If you haven't had an agreement prepared in your particular province or state by a qualified lawyer, then you're taking the risk that what you've got is not going to work if it's ever relied on.
0: Right. So that's a little bit of a scary thought because I know that these things are marketed widely nowadays. And for a lot of entrepreneurs who I think are probably, you know, in a little bit of a tight cash situation, they want to do what they can do to protect themselves. So they're kind of taking this as like a better than nothing option, but it sounds like it maybe isn't (laughs) better than nothing unless they're being asked really thoroughly, like what industry related questions and geographically related questions then maybe, right?
1: You know, I think one of the emerging areas of law, and this is going to be coming more and more the case, and it's more developed in the United States than it is in Canada. But as AI gains more and more traction, and there are some AI legal services that are quite sophisticated, they can be good right now, as we, as we speak right now, for what I would call transactional purposes. So, things related to one-off things like property transactions or things that involve set documents that are, and some legal processes involve forms that the government mandates you must use this form. So for example, if you were going to probate an estate, your loved one passes away, there are a series of forms, literally a series of forms that you have to fill out and file with the court to go through the exercise of probating that estate. It's a unique set of forms in each province and state, but they're still a set of forms. And so for something like that, you can see how using an online service might work. For something a little nuanced, like an employment contract, where take, for example, the current situation with COVID-19, I would pretty much guarantee that no employment contract out there online predicted a pandemic and built that into the provisions in the employment contract and Mm -hmm. what happened to that employee that needs to be laid off in the middle of a pandemic. But that is something that an employment lawyer who's been around and has experience will have built into their precedent employment contract. Things like unforeseen circumstances like pandemics.
0: So Mel, I want to change gears a little bit. You've had a decent amount of experience, I know from my own personal experience, working with entrepreneurs and helping them maybe patch up some loopholes that they missed along the way when they were taking money and taking names and you know missing some of the legal implications along the way. I'm wondering what are some of the common mistakes that small business owners make in terms of protecting themselves legally? Kelly, I'm not sure
1: if they're mistakes or... I mean, I think it's just the reality that there's a lot of pressure on entrepreneurs and on business generally. And so I think that that causes kind of a priority setting. And those things that aren't maybe front and center, or we think of them as remote issues like legal issues, tend to maybe take a back seat. But I think of a few things, and I think of issues around First, let's talk a little bit maybe about the most common issue we see for entrepreneurs, for business owners, and that is the collection of bills that they're owed. On many, many occasions, and this goes for the largest corporations that we have in our province, right down to individual entrepreneurs, they get into situations where their bills are not paid by a customer or client. It's dangerous for that entrepreneur because obviously cash flow is the lifeblood of a business. And so I guess the mistake, to use your word, the mistake that can be made or, or maybe the oversight is letting that go too long. And there are kind of tried and true principles we see, but if a receivable is out there more than 90 days or so, the chances of getting it collected easily are, you know, they just diminish remarkably. And so keeping in mind that to have a system to follow up on receivables, and not being afraid to if your customer or client is not responding within the time frame, paying within the time frame agreed, not being afraid to use a collection agency or to use a lawyer to help you collect that receivable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you let a receivable go for six or eight months, there is little chance that that is going to get paid. If you engage a collection agency or a lawyer to send a letter after 60 days, 90 days, the chances of you getting that paid are quite a bit higher. That's the first, I would say, error because people are focused on getting work done. I don't know about you, but collecting overdue bills is about the last thing I want to do Mm -hmm. in my practice, but it's something that can really harm even an established business. The second thing is probably not so much not related to, to cash flow, but it has certainly an impact on cash flow. But it's maintaining employees that the business really shouldn't maintain. And for maybe a variety of reasons. But as entrepreneurs, what I would say is there should be obviously careful consideration about who you hire when you know that that person is not the right fit for your organization not putting off that decision. And that's a hard decision. Nobody, and I know from personal experience, wants to go in and have the conversation about letting somebody go. But one employee who is not, a, you know, to use some of the language that's out there on the bus or is rowing against the current or whatever the HR language, can really deflect from the focus of what you're trying to get done and be costly. So not being afraid. And that's easy to say, I suppose, but having the courage to follow through when you know that an employee is not the fit that you need. And you can do that in a really compassionate way, and you can do it with a fair severance and all of the things that you would do as a compassionate and good employer. But that's a source of concern when I see our clients holding on to folks beyond the point where they really should. And usually because just a difficult conversation to have. I mean, I think the third thing, Kelly, that I see. More than I would like is because folks are so busy in the business and taking care of the business. And I see this in my own work as well. So I kind of point the spotlight at us as well as lawyers. We don't do enough of the relationship maintaining and the relationship building. The reason that's so important from a legal perspective is as an entrepreneur, from time to time, your business is going to make mistakes. There's going to be a ball dropped for a customer or client but having that relationship built with that customer or client can kind of be the bridge to keep the relationship or to restore the relationship and keep it going and i know that that's something that you know we see in our practice and from time to time we fall below the standard that we really want to provide and those good relationships sometimes don't get the attention that they need and so that's less a legal issue but more of a general you know business observation from having you know watched employers and businesses uh, deal with customers and clients over the years.
0: Totally. Amazing advice. So I had just a follow-up question. I know you mentioned earlier a few common contracts that new entrepreneurs or even seasoned entrepreneurs are kind of going to need as they get going with their business. And I think you brought it up nicely with sort of that employer-employee relationship, because I think to your point, it starts with a really well-established agreement so that both parties are fully aware of what they're getting into and what's considered a breach of that contract, for example. So what do you think are kind of the more common types of contracts that entrepreneurs should be seeking if they haven't already established any formal contracts in their business?
1: This is going to depend a little bit on the kind of business, obviously, that you're in. But for those businesses that need to have a brick and mortar spaces and aren't You know, interested in buying their own property, your lease agreement is one of the most important agreements. And making sure that the renewal terms are fair to you, making sure that the price you're paying and how it's calculated is fair to you. Some of those lease agreements, there may be a base amount of rent that you pay on a monthly basis. There may be common area expenses. Then there may be additional charges for things like property taxes and unforeseen maintenance issues. So you have to, read those agreements carefully and then the renewal terms are also important in those agreements. So that's one contract, that's one agreement that you should carefully look at and make sure is at least fair to you as the business, as the entrepreneur. We've touched on the employment contract already, so I won't bother with that more. Those employment agreements though can incorporate the things that we mentioned earlier, the non-disclosure agreements, the confidentiality agreements. I think something that it's probably... Use less than it could be, but when you're exploring a relationship with another company, having very good non disclosure agreements with that other company or that other person. I've seen clients who are exploring product development opportunities with, could even be a notional competitor, and they're going to be giving away information around their processes and products and being very careful around that disclosure, but making sure there's a good agreement in place that protects the information that you're going to be disclosing to that other party even if they're not currently a competitor could become a competitor i've seen on more than one occasion a company say gee that's a great idea we don't want to do business with you but i think we're going to do that on our own
0: mm-hmm.
1: that can be very disheartening i think to some of the agreements around you know that you get for product delivery, some of the contracts around that, that can be a source of risk for employers and for entrepreneurs if they're not careful about those as well. So making sure that you know if you're agreeing to deliver a product or a service for a certain price within a certain amount of time, that you're not setting yourself up for unintended liability because you deliver the product that isn't quite up to spec or not quite on time. Those kind of commercial agreements can be a source of unintended liability or it can be a source of potential payments being withheld if you know you may may deliver the product they might say well you know what in every 10th lot there was a problem with this particular thing so we're only going to pay you 80% of what we owe you and you know go ahead and sue us and see if you can get the rest from us <laughs> so just being very careful that you've got a contract that isn't unfair to you in the delivery of your product or service if that's something that you're providing
0: Absolutely. And as a service provider myself, I know that one thing that you helped me with was having a severance clause. And that was something that I would have never considered. However, that's income that you're expecting to have. So if the contract is broken, then what happens? So it's always good to protect yourself that way too. So that if a contract is broken by the party that you're serving, you still get at least some of that income coming in. So that gives you a little buffer (laughs) to get the next client. That's right. Mel, thank you so much for your time. I think that all of this information is just pure gold. It's a gift to an entrepreneur who hasn't already had these discussions with a lawyer. I can't thank you enough for giving your time for this. I want to leave off with one last thing. I want to know what is the one thing that you would recommend any entrepreneur listening to this podcast do as soon as it's over?
1: Ooh, so right now, and I guess we're speaking in late April, the one thing I would do is encourage your listeners to review the equivalent of WorkSafe New Brunswick, their local workplace health and safety guidelines for safely returning people to work or interacting with their customers and clients. They can apply those same principles to interacting with customers and clients. And I say that because we're kind of slowly coming out of this pandemic. It's going to be months of adjusting before we're back to hopefully where we were before all this. But in that intervening period, there's going to be a whole new set of health and safety guidelines and protocols that are going to need to be put in place. Entrepreneurs could get a leg up by studying the health and safety guidelines that are applicable to their province or their state.
0: Okay. And we'll make sure that we put a link at least to the ones that we're aware of here in Canada. We'll link those in the show notes so that folks can find those resources easily. I think that that's brilliant because I know that there's a lot of unknown things right now. We're all just kind of learning as we go. And if there's one thing I think that most Canadians are aware of, it's that employees have their right to refuse unsafe work. And I think as an employer myself, that's something that I'm constantly asking myself, well, is this technically a safe working environment? And What parameters do we have around knowing if it's safe or not under these new circumstances?
1: Exactly right, Kelly. That's exactly right.
0: Mel, thank you again so much. I'll make sure that we include ways to contact you as well in the show notes. And thank you.
1: My pleasure. It's great talking with you.
0: Did you learn something there? I hope so. I know I sure did. I mean, I think I do every time I have a legal chat with Mel. And sometimes we don't find out that we haven't crossed all T's and dotted all I's until it's too late. So truly... I hope Mel's generous advice will help to set you on the right track and to remember to always protect yourself in your business. If you're looking to get in touch with Mel or for any other resources discussed in this episode, please visit the show notes page at kellylawson.ca slash 016. Until next week, please keep crossing those T's and dotting those I's, and don't ever stop showing up in the world confidently with your fullest potential in tow. Until next week, Workshop Warriors, bye for now.